Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter, and my guest today is Dr. Todd Shackelford. He is a distinguished professor and chair of psychology at the University of Oakland in the US, as well as the co-director of the Evolutionary Psychology Lab there. He is the editor-in-chief of the academic journals Evolutionary Psychology and Evolutionary Psychological Science, and he is also a fellow of the American Psychological Association and the Association for Psychological Science, and also a very prolific author of very many articles and also edited books. So, Dr. Shackelford, it's really a pleasure to have you, and thank you a lot for accepting the invitation. It's my pleasure, Ricardo. I'm happy to be here. Okay. Okay. So today I asked you to talk a little bit about family dynamics and family relationships from an evolutionary perspective, because I've been having quite a lot of evolutionary <laughs> psychologists on the show, because in fact, it's one of the disciplines I admire the most from all the sciences. And I haven't yet, in fact, talked with, one, with anyone about this topic in specific. So to start off with, um, why, why does it happen that in families between couples and even between other people that are related to the family and even sometimes between the parents and their offspring, we have conflict? Is it because uh, two different people do not really share 100% of their genes and so uh, they're, they're, um, in the end there's, al there's always a self-interest in the equation because I, I mean I share 100% of my genes with myself but not with anyone else, right? Yeah, I mean I think as a broad brushstroke that's probably the most sort of parsimonious way to think about it is that although family relationships are very intense and can be intensely cooperative, they are not, um, they're not perfectly cooperative and indeed uh, cannot be, at least if you use the guide of the percentage of genes or the portion of genes that each member shares with another because as you pointed out, even our children only share, you know, 50% of our genes with us as individuals and so while family relationships can indeed be, you know, warm and, you know, engaging and incredibly supportive, they can also be terribly conflict-ridden. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. But apart from the very specific view coming from genetics and the fact that we don't share 100% of our genes with other people, uh, are there any other aspects that we have to take into the equation to understand why there might stem some conflict from family relationships. Sure, I'm not I'm not sure this will take us fully outside of the realm of genetic, you know, interests, but I mean sure. between a husband or a man and his um and a female partner, um <clears throat> given that humans human males do invest in offspring, I mean there is a persistent issue or potential problem of paternity uncertainty. So a man may be involved with a woman in a long-term relationship, presumably a committed relationship, and he will invest in children that she produces. Um, and that 
creates an adaptive problem uh, for him, what we would call an adaptive problem, uh, namely uh, potentially investing in an offspring to whom he's genetically unrelated, unbeknownst to him. So a separate issue would be step parenting. Um, this would be he's investing in an offspring uh, that was actually sired by a rival rather than by himself. And that creates tremendous conflict in romantic relationships uh, or long-term committed relationships. Um, everything from, you know, everyday conflict in terms of, uh, you know, bickering to more intense conflict that can result in rape or murder. Um, so, I mean, I would put paternity uncertainty up there as, you know, a major area of conflict, which again, doesn't, you know, it's not divorced from the notion of genetic interests, uh, but it's not quite the same sort of genetic interests as the degree of overlap shared between the two individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, I think that there's also another aspect to this, that is when two people get together, they usually are from different families originally. So apart from the fact that I might have children with that woman, for example, I also have my own family, my brothers, my sisters, my parents, and I might also be interested in allocating some resources to them as well. Correct. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're quite right. I mean, the coming together of a particular couple is, of course, you know, the coming together of two separate families. Um, and it's also the case that um, families have extraordinary interests in, you know, the mating decisions and reproductive decisions of the individual members of those families. Um, and so families, uh, particularly parents, uh, can, you know, become incredibly um, active in, they would call it supporting, or, you know, from the children's perspective, it might be perceived as interfering. Um, but families certainly have um, much to gain and much to lose uh, from the mating and reproductive decisions of, you know, their, um, their children and other members of their family. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I've already had another conversation with Dr. David Buss, and he also talks a lot about uh, mating from an evolutionary perspective. So could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the importance of the emotion of jealousy in a couple? Sure. Um, I mean, I think jealousy um, is a very intense and indeed a very powerful emotion um, that I think on balance, you know, generates, you know, a huge amount of conflict uh, in a relationship. I mean, in particular, uh, male sexual jealousy, male sexual jealousy. That is men's, um, you know, sort of concern about their partner's um, likely or possible involvement, sexual involvement with other men. Um, I mean, there's very good evidence that, you know, male sexual jealousy is a, if not the leading cause of intimate partner violence uh, by men against their partners, as well as uh, the killing of women by their male partners. Uh, we've also done quite a bit of work looking at um, the extent to which male sexual jealousy might contribute to uh, sexual coercion and rape of intimate partners. Um, and so it's really just a, you know, it's a nasty emotion, uh, but one that is, you know, produced by evolved machinery of the mind. It was, it's, it's evolved to motivate or evolved to motivate our ancestors, our ancestral males uh, to avoid um, you know, the circumstance of cuckoldry, that is investing in offspring sired by another male. And I mean, we can all agree that it has its moral down, downsides, 
Um, but that's sort of beside the point in the currency of natural selection. I mean, our ancestors are not those men who were, you know, just fine with their partner having sex with another man. You know, they were super liberal and, you know, very happy to have their partners, you know, have sex with whoever they wanted to. I mean, our ancestors are those men who were not pleased and made it known that they were not pleased um, should their partner even look in the direction of another man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And another thing that, that I think is related to jealousy is the fact that when we feel jealousy toward another person, and particularly when she is part of our couple and we are in an intimate relationship with that person, it is also the case uh, that we we want to take some... That, let, let me just reformulate, okay, so je, uh, because we feel jealousy, uh, it also motivates us to deploy tactics in order to prevent that other person to perhaps uh, end the relationship with us and go to another relationship, correct? Absolutely. So, yeah, my in my response before, I was focusing more on sort of... Um, you know, if an infidelity were detected. But of course, a large part of, of jealousy is preventing any sort of, um, you know, straying from the relationship, either on a short-term basis or attempting to end the relationship altogether. And so uh, with David Buss, who was my uh, graduate advisor, in fact, um, and uh, many other colleagues of the last 25 or 30 years, we've done quite a bit of work on what we call mate retention. Um, these are the things that men and women do um, explicitly, that is by their own reports, to keep their partner interested in them uh, and um, and also to keep their partner from becoming involved with anybody else. And so in these mate retention tactics, I should I should note that uh, sexual jealousy is, is, you know, men don't have the market cornered on, on sexual or emotional jealousy. I mean, women also are quite capable of, of jealousy. Um, and both men and women are, are quite capable and quite prolific at mate retention behaviors. Um, much of our work is, has been focused more on male sexual jealousy and male mate retention behavior, um, but certainly um, there is uh, work on female mate retention and, and female um, jealousy. It just tends to be a little less florid and a little less um, devastating in terms of the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yes, that last part is very interesting because I also wanted to ask you, uh, it sometimes uh, gets related to tactics that involve uh, physical abuse or verbal abuse, but violence in some form, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's particularly the case with regard to male sexual jealousy. Men's jealousy is far more likely to result in physical violence <clears throat> and uh, and murder than is the case with women's uh, jealousy of their partners. Now, I, I will say, on the other hand, that women do kill their partners uh, when you know in jealous rages. Um, well, let me let me rephrase that. Women do kill their partners, uh, but more often than not, the trigger for that murder is in fact the man's sexual jealousy, and so it's women defending themselves against the jealous husband, um, or alternatively, women defending their children against a jealous husband who might be attempting to use violence against the children as a means of punishing who he suspects is an unfaithful wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That, that's very important. And another aspect, I think, is that uh, in regards to infidelity, I mean, when a man or a woman is unfaithful to their partner, it doesn't always uh, means that she or he 
is uh, want really to leave the relationship that they already have. Sometimes they only want, they are already in that relationship for a long time and they want to uh, get a little bit outside of it just to check out what is their current value in the mating market and other things like that, right? Yes, I think that's um, a very good way to summarize a lot of that. I mean, we know that, uh, well, it's, it's not quite so interesting, I think, perhaps from the male's perspective, because the greatest predictor of men's infidelity is just sheer opportunity. Um, so just having an opportunity, um, that's all you need to explain men's infidelity. Women's infidelity, the best predictor seems to be, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of work on women's infidelity, but one of the best predictors is her uh, dissatisfaction uh, with her partner, her, her dissatisfaction with the relationship itself, um, it, which suggests the possibility that she may be testing sort of alternative partners. Um, at the same time, we know that uh, the the men that women do select as extra pair partners while maintaining an ongoing relationship, these men have a particular set of non-arbitrary qualities, namely they're much more physically attractive than their long-term partners, they're sexier, they're better lovers, they're more likely to report experiencing an orgasm with an extra pair partner than with an in-pair partner. Um, and so I think, you know, um, yeah, I mean, people are quite capable, both men and women are quite capable of having a long-term relationship while also pursuing a short-term relationship. And the reasons for doing so might be somewhat different for men and women. And they might be different because the optimized reproductive strategies for men and women differ, correct? So, for example, men produce sperm virtually throughout their entire lives and all the time, and they don't get pregnant, so they don't have to go through that those painful nine months of pregnancy and and then also have the child with them to rear and things like that so, uh, so their optimized sexual strategy would go to would be to try to impregnate as much as much women as they can correct but in the case of women that's not the case but they might want to keep their original relationship but at the same time at the same time sorry try to obtain perhaps resources from other men as well yeah, or um, or yeah, keep the main. So from for from women's perspective, uh, to keep the investing long-term relationship going, um, while also one way to think about it is the possibility of securing genes, uh, better genes, good genes, um, genes that build attractiveness and um, you know sexiness, for example, to collect those genes from another man. Um, uh, and from men, I mean, I think you're right that there are sex differentiated sort of strategies involved here. I mean, I, I would I would simply note that it it, it isn't the case, I think, that men uh, that their optimum strategy is to impregnate as many women as possible. Um, I think that it's it's a it's the relative costs and benefits um, that have to be considered. So for men, I mean, the the relative costs involved in pursuing multiple partners are very small compared to the potential benefits, um, the, the reproductive benefits over evolutionary time that would have accrued to men who were pursuing these short-term relationships. Um, and so all of which is meant to say that sometimes the best strategy for a man um, might be to be committed to a single woman and to, be, and to maintain that, so, that monogamous relationship and to not pursue um, alternative short-term relationships, which might jeopardize um, you know, his 
current long-term relationship should it be discovered. Mm -hmm, exactly. And uh, now I want to put something on the table and then I'm going to ask you to comment on it because it mm -hmm. seems to me uh, with the conversations that I've been having with biologists and psychologists and so on that it is still kind of a mystery how monogamy might have evolved not only in humans but in other species as well. But let's stick to humans now. Uh, uh, Okay, so I'm going to put an hypothesis on the table and then you can comment on it. That is, uh, wouldn't monogamy bring benefits both to men and women in a different way? Because for men, if they know that that woman uh, only provides sexual benefits, let's say, to them and, and they are not having sex with other men, then they would be certain that the children that came from that woman would be 100% there. So that would alleviate, let's say, parental or parent uncertainty. And f in the case of women, I mean, they would have exclusive access to the resources of that man and he, he wouldn't share them with any other woman. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Um, did, shall I comment on sure, that? Sure, sure. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's in principle, it's a, you know, it's it's a trade-off. It's, it's an exchange of reproductive and sexual access for sustained resources. But the problem is that, you know, it is possible and sometimes very alluring to renege on the deal. So sometimes both men and women are unfaithful. Um, and, you know, they break the almost always explicit commitment. Um, what I mean is, uh, I mean, marriage is, is a human universal. It occurs in every culture um, with a variety of bells and whistles. Um, but, but the thing is that there's really no guarantee that one's partner will never, you know, sort of opt out of the agreement, even temporarily. Um, and so this is why uh, the emotion of jealousy evolved, I mean, in short. Um, because there's always the possibility, it is always possible that a partner, whether it's a male or a female, will, you know, fail in that promise. Um, and women, you know, will pursue extra pair sexual relationships. Men will pursue extra pair sexual relationships and sometimes extra pair long-term relationships, diverting resources that his partner expected to another woman and to another woman's child. And so while, you know, while, you know, um, there is the expectation, of course, that this, you know, this relationship is um, treated as monogamous. Um, there's never a guarantee. So there's never a guarantee that men are 100% certain uh, that their offspring are, in fact, their own offspring. Um, now, I mean, we do have, you know, DNA fingerprinting technology today, so we can do that. But the male mind didn't evolve in the context of access to, you know, such extraordinarily accurate uh, paternity technology, uh, paternity detecting technology. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I guess that that recent paternity detection technology that we have nowadays is not really relevant from an evolutionary perspective, right? Right. I mean, that's right. It's not relevant in terms of it doesn't tell us anything about, you know, the underlying evolved structure of the mind. Um, 
and it doesn't help us to understand, you know, why men would ever have been, you know, concerned about paternity. Um, I mean, of course, they need not be today uh, if, you know, if a paternity test were sort of done on a regular basis. Uh, but then again, I can imagine that there will be men who wouldn't even believe the paternity results. So. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that, uh, again, regarding infidelity, I guess that because of our own self-interest, if we have an advantage, an additional advantage that is at hand and we, can, and we can do something about it and we don't get punished for it, I guess that it is too tempting to try to avoid that, right? You mean... Do you mean with regard to the paternity testing technology, or do you uh, mean? Oh, oh no, 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 no! I was talking about <laughs> trying to gain further advantage by having additional partners. Yeah, that's the thing is that there are, you know, there are um, benefits ancestrally speaking. There statistically are benefits associated with the pursuit of infidelities. Yes, of course, there are also costs, but there are benefits. Um, even if those benefits, you know, themselves come with costs, um, they are nevertheless benefits that can be incredibly alluring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's uh, let's now change a little bit the topic sure. and talk about one of the big topics of your research, that is sperm competition. Sure. So, w would you classify this as a mate retention tactic for men? Um, I think I would. Um, I I would argue that sperm competition um, and, well, I would argue that sperm competition is basically the way to think at the broadest level about all of the conflict that's going on between the sexes, especially conflict between uh, mated partners. Oh, um, oh, ju just by the way, just for the audience, could you please yep. explain the concept of sperm competition before continuing? Sure, sure. So sperm competition, generally speaking, refers to the competition between the sperm from different males for access to um, an egg or eggs. Um, I mean, anytime a, a female mates multiply or is mated multiply, um, the sperm from those different males will compete for access to or the prize of the egg. Um, I mean, this is part of what sperm are designed to do, is to compete effectively for fertilization. Um, now, with that backdrop in mind, I think that sperm competition theory, which was advanced um, probably most clearly by Jeffrey Parker in the late 60s and, and early 1970s, a biologist working with insects, um, um, I think that that framework provides you know, a good way to sort of cast a wide net on a lot of the conflict that occurs between men and women or between males and females, um, which includes human males and females, of course. Um, and so a lot of our work, at least in the early part of my career, focused on, and still, uh, focused on um, the extent to which sperm competition may have served as a selective force in human evolutionary history and in the uh, production or creation of or design of the human mind. In particular, uh, I've been very fascinated with um, male psychological adaptations that may have evolved in response to the adaptive problem of sperm competition. And so um, some of the work that we've done has documented, for example, that uh, the longer that a, a couple spends apart from one another since they last had sex, um, uh, the, well, it's actually the portion of time 
that the couple has been apart, physically apart since they last had sex, um, predicts uh, the the male's interest in having sex with with his partner. It predicts his his um, reports of her physical attractiveness, her sexual attractiveness. So it's specifically time spent apart, a proportion of time spent apart since they last had sex, not time since last sex. It'd be it'd be one thing would be oh well maybe it's just been a long time since they had sex, but it's not time since last sex. In fact, it's not even time since last ejaculation. So we've actually controlled for time since last sex with that woman, time since last sex with any woman, and also time since last masturbation. Um, and what we find is it's specifically the proportion of time that the couple has spent apart since they last had sex that predicts these various psychological um, outcomes for men, um, which you know is very difficult to account for other than with recourse to, without, other than um, recourse to sperm competition theory and trying to understand um, why this percentage of time spent apart or proportion of time spent apart should be so important. And again, um, we don't find the same effects for women. Um, they're specific to men um, and they are specific to time apart. I mean, the idea is that time apart is time that men can't account for where their partners have been or what they've done. And better to assume that she's had sex with another man than to assume that she hasn't. Um, now, when you ask men what they're thinking, they won't tell you anything remotely close to, you know, why well, I'm worried that she's had sex with another man and may contain sperm from a rival male. They'll just say, I don't know, she just looks particularly attractive right now. Um, so, uh, but of course, uh, those findings are entirely consistent with the findings uh, in, you know, dozens of studies of socially monogamous birds, for example. Um, male birds behave precisely the same way as male humans, and we don't require that male birds have sort of figured out that, you know, that or consciously are able to articulate, if we had any way, way of even determining this, uh, that their partners might contain sperm from rival male. Birds are just thinking probably what human males are thinking, which is, she looks particularly attractive. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that in, in the one hand, it's, it seems funny. On the other hand, it seems a bit creepy, let's say, at least for people who are not into it uh, scientifically. But uh, anyway, how do you study this specifically? I'm curious. Do you collect sperm samples from different men? And then in the lab, you study exactly what? The volume, the sperm motility, or what exactly? Sure. So the work that I just referred to, that was all conducted um, using self-reports and partner reports. So we just ask people, when is the last time you had sex? And then we ask them, you know, how attractive do you, do you find your partner right now? How much, you know, um, when would you next like to have sex with your partner? And basically that's how we got, um, how we got access to those data, the psychological data. On the other hand, in the last few years, we've since established and are actively running a human semen analysis lab uh, where we actually do collect ejaculates. Um, and we have several different projects running right now, um, one of which is at a very basic level designed to replicate uh, the work uh, in humans that was conducted by uh, Robin Baker and Mark Bellis in the 1980s and 1990s, um, where we basically have, in, in our work, we have couples coming, these are couples who are involved in committed sexual relationships. Um, they come into the lab uh, seven different times and um, to make a long story short, they provide, um, or the man, well, or the couple, provides uh, s uh, six uh, ejaculate 
ejaculate samples. So three masturbatory samples and three copulatory samples. So we actually have them, they actually have sex, they bring the condom into the lab within one hour, or ma the male masturbates, brings the condom into the lab within one hour, and then we immediately analyze it, and it's actually um, s you know, stunningly simple to do this once you have the technology. I mean, we have um, what's called a semen quality analyzer. It's a laser, it, it runs um, it's, it runs by virtue of laser optics, and in 75 seconds, um, you get a report on 17 clinical parameters um, from sperm motility, swimming speed, average swimming speed, straightness of swimming speed, sperm morphology. You get, of course, you get uh, assessments of sperm concentration. And so now we're finally in a position to actually investigate um, some of the semen parameters and whether they, in fact, vary as a function of the risk of sperm competition. Uh, one of the one of the classic findings in this area is that when there's a greater risk of sperm competition, um, males produce ejaculates that include a greater number of sperm, as if they're adjusting their ejaculate in response to the um, increased risk of, of competition. And Baker and Bellis have documented this in human samples um, with small samples over the past, uh, they, again, back in the 1980s and 1990s. And this, this very finding has now been replicated in, you know, hundreds of different animals, um, probably most famously and repeatedly in birds, uh, where male birds will ejaculate larger numbers of sperm, um, where there's an absence uh, from their regular partner. They seem to be presuming that, uh, you know, this can't be good. Um, and so we're looking to see whether or not this replicates in humans. Um, and so we're sort of at the beginning of this process of, of human semen analysis. It took us a long time to sort of get to this point. And institutional, our institutional review board, you know, required, you know, um, I actually don't think it was unreasonable, but it took us the better part of about 18 months, almost two years, uh, to get approval to do this kind of research. Um, but we have it now. And so we're conducting um, a couple of different studies right now. One is with the couples. Um, and where they come in six different times. We actually collect data on, so we have ejaculates from these couples. We also have, um, we have them, um, this is work conducted with uh, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Lisa Welling. Um, she also, uh, she do, she's a, um, an evolutionary behavioral endocrinologist. And so oh, we- I already have her on the show, so- uh, Okay, good, yeah, yeah. okay, great. So, um, so we also have saliva samples uh, from each one of these, uh, participants. And so we can investigate questions like, do men vary uh, various parameters of their ejaculates as a function of their partner's ovulatory cycle status? Um, might men ejaculate you know, greater numbers of sperm when their partners are at mid-cycle as opposed to when they're outside of the fertile window? And so we'll be in a position to answer these kinds of questions. Um, so anyways, uh, we're very excited about it. And we think it's really interesting and um, you know, sort of pushes the envelope. Um, for the work that we've been doing anyways on sperm competition in humans. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well, and I hope it all goes well for you in that endeavor. But now let's move on to another topic, sure. because we've been talking, we've been focusing a lot on couples, but now let's move on to parent-offspring conflict. Um, so why does this happen in humans? Is it again because parents don't share all of their genes with their children and because 
they, and because that doesn't happen, they also differ psychologically, and so children and parents might have different interests and might want to pursue different things, and that's where uh, the conflict stems from. Well, I mean, I would say that that's an excellent summary of parent-offspring conflict theory, and I think that does basically capture in a broad brushstroke why you know, the relationships between parents and offspring are not totally and utterly cooperative. In fact, um, they're often riddled with conflict um, alongside, you know, you know, extended periods of cooperation and, you know, uh, tremendous, generally speaking, tremendous cooperation. There is conflict. Um, and it's often uh, around, um, you know, the distribution of resources, uh, particularly if there's, um, I mean, the conflict can get, um, exacerbated, for example, where there are multiple offspring. Um, and so there you can see uh, the, you know, the, you know, sort of the, the ground being readied for sibling conflict um, as children, of course, value themselves um, more than do they value their siblings. Um, from a, from a genetic perspective, uh, I share 100% of my genes with myself, but only 50% of my genes with my full sibling. And yet, from the parent's perspective, each child is a is a genetic vehicle for the same proportion of genes. And so, very often, parents, uh, particularly mothers, spend a good portion of their time, you know, encouraging siblings to get along better than they do. Um, so yes, I think that is uh, one way to think about uh, sibling or uh, to think about parent-offspring conflict is that, it, you know, yes, there are shared genes, but they're not perfectly shared. Um, and so that provides the breeding grounds for a, tr a tremendous amount of conflict, especially when, you know, families are in part, you know, sort of a, you know, a mechanism by which resources are transferred from adults to children. Uh, I mean, there's a lot at stake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I guess these are all very controversial topics and people get very easily uneasy when they're talking about this, particularly if they do not do work in evolutionary psychology or are not familiar with the literature. So, uh, but at a certain point, you refer to sibling conflict, and that's another topic that I want to address with you. So again, siblings usually, unless they are um, twins, uh, don't share 100% of their genes. But uh, I, I guess that there's another aspect to sibling conflict, that is, if the parents themselves do not invest equally across their offspring, then that, also, that might also provoke conflict between the siblings, right? Absolutely. And even, I mean, right, I think one issue is uh, parents not investing equally in, the, in their offspring. And I think there's very good evidence that parents do not invest equally in their offspring. They invest as a function of, and again, I don't think parents, parents will deny this, uh, but if you assess things like emotional support and liking and time and energy investment, parents do not invest equally in their offspring. I mean, as a parent, I will say that I do, <laughs> but, I'm, but, but of course I'm deluded myself. Um, and I, you know, uh, but the bottom line is um, parents will invest differentially. But even if parents, um, sorry, if you, if you talk with parents, uh, they will invest, um, their investments will be perceived by siblings as 
differential. So, um, in part because, again, from any individual offspring's perspective, they are worth more to themselves than their sibling is to them. And so what any given offspring perceives as equitable, of course, will always be biased towards themselves. And so unless it's already, unless the investment is biased towards one sibling, um, according to according to that offspring's perception, it wouldn't be biased, it would be appropriate. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a breeding ground for conflict because there are not identical interests on behalf of any one of those parties. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think um, it is, you know, it is, uh, I mean, parent-offspring conflict and sibling conflict is um, a persistent, um, you know, problem, you know, a persistent difficulty. Um, notably, earlier in life when, when offspring are particularly reliant on parental resources. But, you know, typically sibling conflict continues um, throughout life, although it can, you know, um, decrease as, of course, the reliance on parental support usually decreases. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I guess that it is also very difficult for people to understand this and even to admit it when they see it happening. But another aspect to this is that uh, the parents might also have something to gain, that is, they, they, might so, uh, they might also extract some value in terms of gaining more resources or things related to material gains or economic gains uh, due to their offspring choices. For example, if they choose to mate with different people that have different social status, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that gets into the, the area of, you know, um, parental attempts to influence or affect um, their, their children's mating decisions. Um, yeah, I mean, um, certainly uh, a poor mate choice can be devastating uh, from the parent's perspective because uh, a poor mate choice can have cascading consequences on the reproduction of uh, that's, you know, that is or isn't accomplished by the children. Um, and so what you do find is that parents do tend to be more interested or at least more concerned about uh, their daughters, uh, their, their girls, uh, mating behaviors and reproductive choices. But of course, that's, again, not, this isn't to morally justify it, but it's perfectly understandable from an evolutionary perspective because uh, it's uh, daughter's poor choices, just like a woman's poor choice in terms of a mate, is going to have uh, potentially heavier negative reproductive consequences for that individual and therefore for that individual's parents. Um, which is why you see cross-culturally parents being more suffocating, you know, more interested in their daughter's sexual behavior than in their son's sexual behavior. Um, so, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, exactly. And now another thing that has to do with the relationship between parents and their offspring, but now it is a little bit more complicated because the offspring doesn't really come from those parents. And I'm talking about foster caring or foster parenting 
So, um, and, I, and I guess that this gets very dark very quickly because, in fact, I guess that one of the things that comes from the, your, the, from the work you've done also with your wife, if I'm not mistaken, yes. Viviana Wickshackle, for the you've yes. studied foster parenting. Uh, and um, in foster families, it occurs much easier that, that parents uh, maltreat children, correct? That is, they are more violent, more easily towards those children. Yes, although I would I would use the terminology step parenting, step parents, oh, okay, okay, okay. foster parents, because um, okay. I think that although you know the risk of neglect, abuse, and and filicide or the killing of a child is is higher uh, among foster children than among genetic children, it's certainly higher still among stepchildren than among genetic children. Um, yes, and we've uh, found this in multiple different uh, you know samples using um, in several cases uh, uh, data sets that are 500,000 homicides, uh, like the FBI homicide database, database uh, which which includes several thousand um, or certainly several hundred uh, child killings. But yes, we've investigated um, and replicated uh, some of Martin Daly and Margot Wilson's earlier work, um, showing that. Uh, stepchildren are indeed more likely uh, to be murdered uh, than are genetic children. Um, if you again, what you do is you look at the rates. You look at the number of stepchildren to the number of step, you know, step families. Basically, you have to look at, um, you know, you're looking at rates but, because, of course, on balance, more genetic children are actually killed than our stepchildren. But then there are far more genetic children than there are children who are living with one genetic parent and one step parent. So. Um, but the, the rate of homicide, um, of filicide, we call it filicide, the killing of a, of a child by a parent, that rate is much higher uh, for stepchildren than it is for genetic children. So the, the logic of the greater risk of, of filicide to stepchildren than to genetic children is that uh, stepparents and typically stepfathers um, uh, simply do not have the, well, at a very basic level, don't share genes with that stepchild, and this is a um, this offspring is a you know is a resource drain. It's a you know it's it's a vehicle that's sort of using up resources um, with no reproductive or genetic payoff. Um, and so again, it's nothing peculiar to to humans. I mean, step you know um, the the killing of of a, a previous. Um, of the offspring of a previous uh, of a partner's rival um, occurs in other species as well, uh, but we've actually yeah so we've we've um, done several studies again looking at uh, nationwide um, statistics. Uh, also, we've uh, looked you know we've looked at the city of Chicago in particular, where they have much more information on any given homicide, and then we actually um, identified and, and got access to a data set of Chicago homicides that were. Um, committed between the years of 1870 and 1930, uh, and we actually have the handwritten police files. And so we were able to show that, not surprisingly, um, there again, stepchildren are at greater risk than our genetic children. Uh, I mean, we weren't surprised, but then one of the arguments is that, well, maybe that's just something peculiar to the modern world. Um, I'm not sure how that would work, but at any rate, um, that, that clearly documents that it's not something peculiar to, you know, world in the, you know, in... 19, you know, in the, in the late 1900s, early 2000s, the same pattern of, of, of 
findings turns up in you know 1870 uh, Chicago mm -hmm. yeah, yeah uh, and okay so does all does all do all types of neglect and abuse that we can consider occur with a much higher incidence in foster parents than in parents yes so you mean in step parents again i would say step uh, I, I, yeah so, sorry sorry about that um, yeah. yeah the answer is yes um i mean the you know the staggering weight of the evidence indicates that stepchildren are at much higher risk of neglect abuse and murder uh than our genetic genetic children um i mean there, there have been a couple of reports where they've found that the rates are about equal um but i think again the weight of the evidence suggests that there is a risk an increased risk to stepchildren of neglect abuse and 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 murder i mean another area i just want to mention that uh, we've also done work on uh, also inspired by uh the work by daly and wilson is on the method of killing And so if you look in more detail at how children are killed, what you find, what we find and what they found, we found in different and new and larger data sets is that step parents are much more likely to, if they, when they do kill their children, to kill them with methods that we and Daly and Wilson have argued reflect, um, well, at a minimum, um, a dislike of the child, um, even a rage or an anger of the child. So for example, step parents are much more likely to kill their children by bludgeoning them to death, um, by uh, committing what's often referred to as overkill, um, where you beat them you know, to death and then oftentimes um, way beyond what was actually necessary to kill them. Whereas when genetic parents kill their children, and they do kill them, um, it's often by means, it's more often by means that are, that arguably, uh, but I think it's a weak arguably, um, are you know, produce a, a quicker death and a, and a less painful death. So a single gunshot to the head, for example, or a single stab wound to the heart. Whereas if a stabbing occurs with a stepchild, it's, you know, it's 113 stabs, you know, all over the legs and the arms. And, um, and, and again, this doesn't prove anything, but it suggests that there might be something psychologically different uh, when step parents kill a child than when genetic parents kill a child. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Okay, and let's just talk a little bit about religious indoctrination of children, because that's another way in which parents try to influence their children, because they want for their children to have their interests aligned with them, I think. Uh, yeah. So, um, what did you study about that, about the transmission of religiosity between generations? The, Does it, uh, does it occur completely in a, um, let's say, developmental way that these children are exposed to their parents' religion and, and so they incorporate it? Or does it also have any sort of genetic component to it? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I sort of confess that this is not an area that I've done a significant amount of work in, although in the last few years, we've had a couple of graduate students who have been really interested in this. And one of the things that we wanted to do, we got very frustrated. We looked at the literature. We wanted to, we, we wanted to look at how is it that parents do influence their children's religiosity? Well, we presume they do, and I think there's good evidence that they do. Um, and yet uh, the, you know, the data that had been accumulated up to a few years ago had really turned on asking 
asking children to respond, adult children to respond, to what extent did your parents influence your religiosity? You know, and it was very, a very surface sort of not very deep sort of um, assessment of this. And furthermore, I didn't, you know, it was just sort of, did your parents influence you? Um, Yes or no. Um, And we wanted to know, okay, but how? What are the ways in which parents attempt to influence their child's religiosity? Um, And so we developed um, sort of a a psychometrically sound measure of um, uh, parents' attempts to inculcate religious beliefs uh, in their children. Um, And we recently published that in uh, Personality and Individual Differences. But in the context of developing that measure, we we quickly discovered that it's not it's not, of course, just parents who are, you know, who are you know, influencing their children. Um, and in fact, all the evidence um, in areas other than religiosity suggests that parents have actually very little impact on how their kids turn out. Um, and so, uh, in fact, it's peers more often than it's parents. And so we then um, asked uh, this is a, over several years. I'm trying to summarize a, a several different studies. Uh, we then asked um, the same sample of participants, not identically the same, but from the same population, you know, had your, did your parent, I'm sorry, did your peers have any impact on your religious beliefs? And, and of course they did, uh, according to our participants. And so we had originally hoped to develop a single instrument that assessed uh, parental influence on, on religiosity and peer influence on religiosity. But as it turned out, um, they just, they were, they were too different. Um, the things that peers did and the things that parents did, um, perhaps with 2020 hindsight, were different. I mean, these are different types of relationships with different sort of power dynamics. And um, and we quickly found that we needed to develop a separate inventory for how peers influenced um, a child's uh, or a, a teenager's or an adult's religiosity. And so we're just at the beginning of this line of work. We've, we've established these, you know, psychometrically sound ways of assessing. Um, and each one of these measures includes, you know, several dozen items, specific instances in which a parent attempts to influence a child's religiosity or specific uh, instances in which a peer attempts or attempted to influence an individual's religiosity. And then we've sort of factor analyzed those and you know, identified several factors of influence, um, all of which, uh, you know, again, just sort of bring this back to the original um, question, it was, it was to assess whether and how parents, you know, influence their kids' religiosity. And we again, became quickly frustrated with how little was being asked about how this was occurring. And so we sort of just tried to get it back down to ground zero. Um, and so again, our, our measure itself is not, you know, it's not tied to an evolutionary perspective. It's simply our attempt to develop a way to assess how parents do just this. That is, um, you know, inculcate religion in, in children or how peers do this. But it's a very interesting line of work that I think you know, um, well, of course, I would think this, uh, having been involved in this research, but I think it's a very interesting line of work that um, I think uh, this is an area that, um, you know, that shouldn't just be glossed over with a single question. Did your parents influence your religious beliefs? So. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I guess that at least for the time being, we can't really conclude that because someone is religious, that, that stemmed simply from the fact that their parents tried to inculcate religiosity into them, correct? Absolutely. Although, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. Although I also will note that, um, I mean, we know that religiosity, the intensity of religiosity is in fact heritable. Uh, so there is a significant 
heritable component to religiosity. Now, the specific details, of course, of the religiosity of the religion are are culturally um, inculcated, um, but the sort of you know the um, the intensity of, of belief, um, regardless of the specifics of the belief, does in fact have a significant heritable component. Mm -hmm. Okay, so le let's end now. But before that, just one last question, and I think that it is a bit tricky, but I want to ask you for your opinion anyway. That is, so we've been talking about family dynamics here. And when we talk about that uh, in evolutionary psychology and other areas, biology also, we have this term kin selection that refers to the fact that because we share a certain percentage of our genes with family members, that we would also take into account their interests and their survival and their reproductive strategies and all of those things. And we would be interested in their success as well. But, but then th there's another term that is not particularly related to families that is reciprocal altruism, that is the way we establish, let's say, friendship relationships more or less with other people that are not really part of our family, but we can have a lot to gain with that because they cooperate with us and they help us solve some problems and things like that. But uh, what I want to ask you about this is, uh, do, we, do we already know if there's some relationship uh, emotionally uh, between kin selection and reciprocal altruism? Because I've heard from some people that I guess are not particularly into evolutionary psychology that uh, that one of the hypotheses they put on the table is that we originally evolutionarily developed kin selection and then the emotions that we had to develop in order to establish friendships with people that were not part of our families directly stemmed from kin selection. The, does that make any sense? Do we know something about that? Yeah, so you mean, uh, for example, uh, if you mean like our feelings of loyalty or friendship or belongingness in, for example, a nation or in a particular religion, if those might be instances in which a kin-selected evolved psychology is being parasitized or being taken advantage of by the nation, for example. Is that what you mean? Uh, not exactly. I, I was I was trying to ask you if you are we already know something about uh, how uh, the emotions that we developed in order to establish relationships with our family members. Yes. Th then over time he gave rise to other emotions that we use in order to establish friendships through reciprocal altruism. That seems utterly possible to me um, and even quite likely. Um, yes, there are evolved psychology that may have evolved originally for, uh, you know, relation for interactions within a family. Those then could have been 
manipulated and sort of taken advantage of um, or could have been used in the context of relationships with friends. But we could even just say, okay, with regard to reciprocal altruism, you know, evolved machinery that exists to solve various problems of reciprocal altruism, that machinery, which produces a certain set of emotions, could have been um, sort of um, exacted, as Stephen Jay Gould would say, uh, to relationships with um, not just friends, but with countrymen or women, or with larger groups, um, sort of, again, taking advantage of, um, you know, or, or building on top of um, a psychology that originally was uh, designed to uh, promote um, close, intimate friendships, for example. So yes, I don't. that seems entirely plausible. And do we know anything? I think we do. I think there are people who are working on issues of in-group and out-group uh, loyalty and the extent to which um, there is, in fact, uh, the manipulation of, for example, the manipulation of kinship terms um, to promote particular bonds or promote particular groups. Um, and that, you know, that manipulation can be in the service of good and morally laudable uh, actions, and it can be for, you know, evil and nefarious purposes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no, um, but it's the same basic um, sort of evolved machinery would seem. Yes, I guess that I wanted to ask you that because sometimes it seems a bit tricky because from an evolutionary perspective, we of course are a social species and it seems that the relationships we had to establish evolutionarily with our family members with whom we have some sort of genetic relatedness and on the other hand, with people with whom we didn't share genes at all, let's say friends and other people of our groups uh, through reciprocal altruism, might have developed more or less at the same time. Because, I mean, yes. we always lived in groups, right? Yes. More or less. Yes. I mean, all, all the evidence suggests that we've lived in, in groups. Um, <clears throat> for much of our ancestral history, you know, not groups of millions, but groups of sure. you know, dozens. Um, yes, and so I think that's, yeah, you can have both of these processes operating simultaneously, kin selection and reciprocal altruism. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Shackelford, I, I don't want to take any more of your time today. You've already been very generous with me. So just before we go, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can follow your work on the internet? Sure. Probably the best place to find my work is at my uh, lab's website, which is self-aggrandizingly called uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have a Twitter handle or, or not? I mean, I do, but I'm not I'm not very active on social media, so the best place would be to go to our lab website where I try to make sure um, all of our current research um, is available there. And, you know, you can uh, find out more about our many, many talented undergraduate and graduate students um, who, you know, really make things work to the extent that they do in the lab. Okay, very well. So I will be leaving all of that in the description box of this video. And so the audience, please go check it out because it is very interesting, this work, and we've only uh, talked about perhaps 
one-tenth of all of it here today. So anyway, Dr. Shackelford, it was really nice to talk with you and meet you. Uh, I've been a, a big fan for some time. So again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you very much, Ricardo. It's been my pleasure. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.